up your Bibles to 1st John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 21. 1st John chapter 5, 18 to 21. Lord willing, we will finally complete this wonderful little epistle tonight. You hold me to that. We'll see if we can make it through. Hear the word of the Lord. 1st John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. And eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's look back at verse 18 again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, this passage is an interesting passage because it has caused a lot of controversy in the history of interpretation. You may not know this if you have an ESV the elect standard version, or an NSAB, or something of the sort. But if you have the good old KJV, or maybe the new King James, you may notice that that passage reads a little bit different than the ESV. Instead of it saying, those who are born of God do not keep on sinning, keep on sinning, the KJV reads like this, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. So there's a distinction between keep on sinning and does not sin, is there not? At least in the normal way of hearing. So what is going on here? Why does one translation say keep on sinning, ESV, and some more modern translations, and uh, the KJV says does not sin? But before we seek to unpack the proper meaning, I think this is a good place to remind us that we should not be one-text Christians, A one-text Christian is someone who builds an entire theology based on a single text. And this is not the way we ought to be. There's always going to be a text somewhere that appears to be teaching something that the rest of the Bible not only doesn't teach, but directly contradicts. And you also will always find some heretical group out there, someplace, that built their entire theology based on that verse. Let me give a simple example. Um, There is a very cryptic verse in Corinthians about the baptism of the dead. Kind of confusing. What exactly is the baptism of the dead? Well, there is a group called Mormons who have built an entire theology, an entire temple system telling you exactly what baptism of the dead is. And of course, they're wrong. And that interpretation, while it may seem to be the plain meaning of the text there, it plainly contradicts the meaning of baptism everywhere in the entire Bible. In other words, we should not be one text Christians, but rather we should interpret the part in light of the whole, and the whole in light of the part. Now, the the first question we have to ask ourselves as we're seeking to understand what this passage means is, well, do Christians sin? If the text says Christians, those who are born of God, that is Christians, do not practice sin, well, you have to ask yourself, is that true? Do Christians sin? Well, let's think about some biblical examples. Can anyone think of a biblical example of someone who was a Christian, certainly not questionably Christian, but definitely Christian, who sinned? I can think of many. One example would be Peter. 
You remember on the night that our Lord was betrayed, Peter denied the Lord three times and he wept bitterly. Clearly, that was sin. But that's before the cross. What about after the cross? Maybe you can argue there was no Christians before the cross. I disagree. But let's say you went that way. What about after the cross? Well, you may remember these words in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul confronts Peter. We read this in Galatians chapter 2. Now remember, Cephas and Peter are the same person. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and do not live like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, I just want you, I know I was reading that passage rather quickly, but I want you to think about the language here. Paul confronts Cephas, that's Peter, and he says that you are condemned. He says you acted hypocritically. You were led astray. Your conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Clearly, something there can be fit in the category of sinful, right? I mean, just think about this. You have Christian fellowship. You're hanging out with the Christians. You're loving on each other. Some racists come in, and you separate from them. and say, now I'm no longer going to associate with you. Clearly, that is a sinful behavior. We in Christ are not about racism, but not about discrimination, not about pushing people off and saying that we're better than them. And that's what Peter was doing. And make it worse, he was an apostle doing this, sending the absolute wrong message of reconciliation in Christ. Clearly, Peter had sinned. Interesting enough, on a side note, real quick here, it's interesting that what was the cause of Peter's sin there? The cause of Peter's sin there in Galatians chapter 2 was the same cause of Peter's sin back in the Gospels where he denies the Lord Jesus. And that was fear of man. Does anybody see that? The reason why Peter denied Jesus is because he feared man. And the reason why Peter withdrew from the Gentiles in Galatians chapter 2 in Antioch church because he feared man. And that just shows you that even when we come to Christ, even when we're transformed, even when we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, even when we have that new heart, that new spirit, and that God in the form of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, we still struggle with sin. We still have indwelling sin. And guess what? Sometimes that indwelling sin that we struggle with I should say most of the time, is the same type and category of sin that we struggle with before we are Christians. Just understand that. And we clearly see that with Peter. Let me give you a few other examples. What about David? Was David a Christian? Did David have the Holy Spirit? Yes. And yet, did David sin? We have many examples of David sinning. One example is, of course, when he did the census. That was sinful. Even his commander, Joab, told him, no, if Joab rebukes you, things have gone bad. Joab's not a nice guy. But even Joab knew this was a bad idea. And David continued on stubbornly. And in that text, he says he sinned. Of course, the most famous example is David and Bathsheba. How much worse could it possibly get? Killing Uriah, taking advantage of a woman, getting her pregnant. All of the sorts, awful. Just absolutely despicable. We have Noah getting drunk. Every alcoholic says, hallelujah, amen. But it's not good. That was bad. Noah should not have gotten drunk. There's nothing wrong with planting the vineyard, but getting drunk, lying down naked, and being humiliated by your children could not get possibly worse, right? This is awful, terrible. Abraham, the father of faith, 
also was a liar who lied about Sarah. Even after, he did that twice, even after God explicitly told him that Sarah was going to be whom the child of promise was going to come through, to save his own neck, he sold out Sarah. He was supposed to protect the woman, and yet he throws her to wicked kings to save his own neck. Then you have Rebecca, next generation, helping her son Jacob lie to her husband, Isaac, and deceive him. These are all sinful behavior. Here's the deal. The Bible is full of examples of people who sin. In fact, interesting enough, Peter's not here, but Peter will tell you this, that this is one of the apologetics of the Muslims against the Bible. Because they say, look, the Bible's clearly corrupted because all your heroes are corrupt and evil. Because they can't understand it. What kind of Bible will be full of heroes that have all these lists of sin? A true Bible. An honest Bible. A Bible where the true hero is not these men, but the true hero is Christ. That's the Bible. Yeah. It's full of examples of people who send, and not only does the Bible tell us they send, but it's not afraid of calling their behavior sin. And the classic example of this is Psalm 51. I've not had this passage memorized. I think my wife does. Maybe my kids have this passage memorized, but I don't have it. But I should, because Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm that talks about what it looks like to sin, but more importantly, to be restored from sin. And here's what Psalm 51 says. The beginning says, To the choir master of Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, and after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is right after the man of God, Nathan, confronts David, who had done this heinous act with Bathsheba. And here is the words of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let me stop here. Remember the the superscription here. This is not David at 12 years old getting converted, right? You see that? This is not David crying out to the Lord, Lord, save me. I am a sinner. I want to be saved. This is saved David praying to God, restore me for this wicked act that I did. And notice what he says, blot out my transgressions. Certainly that included Bathsheba. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Skipping down to verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Clearly, the Bible is not afraid to identify believers as people who can sin and even constantly sin. We do. We constantly sin. You know, it's interesting when I saw 51, on a side note, when Pastor Neil was preaching this morning, I kept thinking about this verse. He was talking about joy, having joy in the Lord. And I kept thinking about this verse right here, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold with me a willing spirit. And I just wonder if any of you, I know I do, need to pray that prayer. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I used to love the Lord more, but not today. Hopefully that's not true of any of you. But if it might be, come on back. Come on back home. Call out to the Lord, and he will restore to you the salvation. Here's the point, though. Moving back. Christians can't sin, Christians do sin, and Christians constantly sin. Now, how often do Christians sin? Daily. Absolutely daily. 
If any of you are single, you may not know that. If any of you are married, you do know that. If you don't know that, your wife knows it. I promise you. Just talk to her. You sin daily. If you don't need the testimony of your wife, how about the testimony of Jesus? When the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he gave the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. And here's what he said. You guys all probably know this by heart. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's a key line. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We can go about this a whole bunch of different ways, but how often should we praise the Lord? How often should we say, glorified be your name? Should there be a single day where you don't live for the glory of God? No. Every single day you should be praising God. God deserves your praise. How many days of the week should you be saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That's a prayer of longing for the kingdom of God to arrive on earth. How often should you do that? Of course, daily. This is also a prayer in principle form for the spread of the gospel. You realize the entire point of history is for the gospel to spread. So how often should you, as maybe a soldier on the front line or sometimes a soldier in the rear, supporting the soldiers on the front line, missionaries like Peter and so forth, should you be praying for their success daily? That wasn't clear enough. He says explicitly, give us this day our daily bread. You know what it means not to eat your daily bread? What do we call not eating our daily bread? It's called fasting. Okay? So unless you're fasting, you want daily bread. We have so much daily bread, we don't even think about it. But you, you need that. You need daily bread daily. Right? And so if you need daily bread daily, you're supposed to pray every day for God to give you your daily bread. And in that same prayer, right after you're asking God, give me my provisions that are needful for me, whether that be food, shelter, water, provisions, anything, you also say, forgive us of our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Two interesting facts about this passage. It tells us that every single day we're going to sin. That's why we ask God every single day, forgive us of our debts. And personally, I pray this prayer, at least I try to, in the morning. Why? Because when the day's over, if I ask God to give me my daily bread, it's too late. I've been hungry all day. I need daily bread in the beginning of the morning, not in the end. And so what that means is I often pray this prayer before I have sinned. At least before I'm even conscious of my sin. I'm preemptively saying, God, forgive me of my debts because I know I'm going to rack up some debt today. In that same moment, you also say, help me to forgive those who sin against me. That means you're also going to experience somebody sinning against you every single day. So how, how often do we sin? We sin daily. And this prayer is a reminder that we are constantly sinning. And that's why James 3.2 says, we all stumble in many ways. Right? Isn't that true? I'm sure each and every one of you can pick out some sin in my life. The question is, can you pick out the sin in your own life? We all stumble in many ways. And we're always better, usually, at discovering other people's stumbling than our own. But here's the point of all of this. The Bible is 100% clear that Christians sin. Christians sinned before Christ came, Christians sinned after Christ came, before the Holy Spirit was poured out, after the Holy Spirit poured out, Christians sinned. And this passage, whatever it means, cannot be denying this, because the Bible is 100% clear about this. And so we should not try to build an entire doctrine, as some have tried to do, based on this passage claiming that Christians cannot sin. Has anybody ever heard anybody who claimed that Christians cannot sin? Maybe some of you guys who've been part of the fundamentalists before. 
independent fundamental Baptists have heard this kind of theology that Christians cannot sin is not true. They try to say, well, Christians don't sin, because this pastor says Christians don't sin. The flesh sins, and the flesh is something other than you. So when you sin, it's not you, it's the flesh. No, this is, this is a very dangerous concept. It's awful. When you sin, guess what? You sin. Not some other entity called the flesh, not something else out there, not somebody else, not your neighbor, not the system, not systemic, right? None of that, come on. You sin, it's you, not anybody else. The devil didn't make you do it. The flesh didn't make you do it. Your neighbor didn't make you do it. And to hit a little closer to home, those of you who like to emphasize the sovereignty of God, God didn't make you do it either. You realize that? No excuses. It's not the devil. It's not the flesh. Not your neighbor. Not your race. Not your gender. And it's definitely not God. Why do I say definitely not God? James 1. Although no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire is conceived and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. What am I pointing out? Stop blaming other people. Stop it. This was what Adam and Eve did. God, it's not my fault, the woman. The woman, not my fault, the serpent. The serpent, I guess he had no one else to blame. He just took it. Right? And this is the one example, maybe you should be like the devil. Just take it. It's you. Stop trying to blame shift. It's you. You have no one to blame but yourself. The Bible is absolutely 100% explicit. 100% explicit about this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we should all memorize this text. Why? Because we struggle with sin every day. And this text helps you beat it. I've hidden your heart, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When you're struggling with sin, what ammo are you bringing against the Lord? Not the Lord, against Satan. The word of God is the sword of the Spirit that we battle with Satan. In this text, I've often fought with Satan with this very text, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may endure it. Here's the paraphrased version. You don't have to sin. God's faithfulness always provides a way that you may endure it. His faithfulness is on the line. What does all this mean? We can't make excuses. We can't blame others. We have to own it. When we sin, we didn't have to. And when we do, we need to repent and return back to Jesus, who's our refuge. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to come back to Christ for that cleansing. We sin. We need to recognize we sin. We need to confess that sin and return back to Christ. One final word for those who may still be on the fence about this whole thing about Christian sinning. All you got to do is go back to 1 John, 1 John 1, 8, right before the verse I just quoted. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Go to the very next chapter, chapter 2. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, whose appreciation for our sins and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. John is very crystal clear that we sin. Now, why is it the case that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us? The reason is very simple. The Holy Spirit, in John chapter 16, Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. Why? Why would it be to the advantage of the disciples that Jesus leaves? Because he says, if I do not leave, the helper will not come to you. And when I send the helper, he will do three things. Anybody know those three things? 
He will come to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. What does the Holy Spirit do? He comes and brings conviction about sin. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Now, what happens if you have the Holy Spirit residing in you? The Bible says that all, all over the place, that we are the temple of God, specifically the Holy Spirit. So what happens if the Holy Spirit's residing in you and in your heart and you're sinning? He will bring conviction to you. And if he's not bringing conviction to you, guess what? He's not there. Does that make sense? You, as the temple, who are sinning against him, and his job is to convict, and if you're not being convicted, he's not there. And hence, you are deceived, and the truth is not in you. Okay, so we know theologically that the ESV is clearly right. Christians do sin, but they do not make a practice of sinning. Now, quickly here, so what's up with the translation? Why does KJV, I think it even NSAB, is that right? NSAB says sin? King James, right? Even a modern translation has it as do not sin instead of do not make a practice or do not keep on sinning. Well, I don't want to get lost in the grammar, but this is called a present active indicative. And the matter short, the present active indicative in Greek is ambiguous. So in English, I could say, I can make a simple present present tense statement like he hit me or he is hitting me or I can make that progressive with the ing with that hitting or loving or hugging that kind of thing hugs versus hugging but in greek that meaning that ing meaning is context dependent the ing doesn't necessarily are not added there so this present tense here is undefined and so normally when it's translated, it's just translated as a simple present tense. Hence the reason why you have in your text that says that does not sin. But in context, in some places specifically, that continuous idea can be brought out. And so I think that if there's ever been a place in the Bible where context determines meaning and shows us a progressive idea is found, it's this passage right here for all the reasons we've already talked about. And many modern translations agree, NIV, NLT, ESV, Good News Translation, so forth and so on, uh, go this route. But what if the KJV, a great Bible, was the only Bible we had, or maybe they're just right about this present tense uh, meaning? What would it mean that Christians do not sin? Well, the question you'd have to ask yourself is, in what way do Christians not sin? Because we've already seen that they sin in some way. And the answer, of course, is they do not sin as in make a practice of sinning. So you can get there either way. Either way you're getting there. In what way do Christians not sin? Well, they don't sin by the sense that they're not sinners and the fact that they won't make a practice of sinning. And in fact, interesting enough, sometimes you'll hear also fundamentalists say, I used to be a sinner. And some of us Reformed people recoil at that and say, whoa, you're always a sinner and a saint, right? But interesting enough that the Bible also uses this phrase sinner in this interesting way as well, where it doesn't always mean someone who simply sins, because then we're all sinners. But sometimes the word sinner in the Bible is specifically talking about someone who makes a practice of sinning. Let me give you a few examples. In Psalm 104, verse 35, it says, Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. He's not saying, let me be obliterated. He's not saying, let me be destroyed. He's saying, I want the sinners and the wicked to be obliterated, and I will praise the Lord. He's praying for the destruction of the wicked, which will come at the second coming. He's praying for the wicked particularly to be destroyed, not for himself. Or here's another famous passage. You probably all know this, Matthew 9. Verse 10, Jesus reclined at table, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Who were the sinners there? Are they the Pharisees? 
In some ways they could, but that's not what the text is talking about. It's specifically talking about people who are categorized of a lifestyle of heinous sin and is describing them as sinners. So here we see this kind of the way that the Bible can sometimes speak is that in one sense that we are all sinners, but in another sense there's only a particular people group that are categorized uh, as sinners. So the text is telling us that only that those who are born of God do not make a practice of sinning. Their lives are not categorized of sinning. Yes, they sin, but that is not their lifestyle. That is not their identity. That is not where they live and swim and dwell, and they have no battle and struggle against it. Now this, of course, makes us all wonder and makes us all have to self-reflect and say, was that you? It says those who have been born of God do not keep on sinning. Well, the question is, are you keeping on sinning? Because if you are, then what's the conclusion? You're not being born of God. That's what you do when you look at texts like this. Those who are born of God do not. Then you have to ask yourself, well, am I? And if you are, don't believe the preacher, believe the word of God. The word of God is crystal clear. If you find yourself living a lifestyle of continuous, unrepentant, gross immorality, you're not a child of God. But you can become one, but you're not currently one. You can become one by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus. But a true child of God doesn't do this. Now the question is, why? It's because Christians are so wonderful people that are just so strong and we just constantly punch the devil in his nose and keep him off of us. Is that what it is? We're just so tough and so spiritually able to resist temptation? No. Look at our text. Look at verse 18. He does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So why is it that we as Christians do not make a practice of sinning? It's because the Son of God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The Son of God not only came to save you and rescue you from your sins, but to sanctify you and to keep you from sinning. Isn't that wonderful? The, the same Jesus who began a work in you is the same Jesus who will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. He's not done with you. He continues to work with you. In Romans chapter 5, it says that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One who will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The work of Christ began while we were still sinners, while we were ungodly. He came in, he washed us off, he made us clean, and he saved us. And this God who began in us will bring that same work into completion. You remember the story of Jesus talking about a shepherd leaving the 99 sheep and going and searching for that one lost sheep. That was you. Christ left heaven and came searching for his people. And when he grabs that sheep, he puts it on his back, he takes it home, and he rejoices over that sheep. And that sheep is not getting away. That sheep is coming on home. And John chapter 6, verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Christ is never going to lose you. Two verses later, he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. If the Father has given you to the Son, the Son will not lose you. And how do you know the Father is giving you to the Son? Because you've come to Jesus. Because you have believed in him. Because you have been saved. And you will not be snatched away by the devil. That's why verse 18 says, And the evil one does not touch him. The evil one would seek to destroy you. Sometimes people say, that there is no cosmic war going on. There's not this war of God and the devil. 
I think they were trying to go so strongly against this dualistic category of evil and light battling each other that they make statements like, there is no war going on. But that's completely unbiblical. Do you see our text? What does the devil want to do to you? He wants to destroy you. He wants to snatch you. Christ is protecting you against a real foe, not imaginary foe. The devil wants to destroy you, but the only reason he cannot get you is because of the power of God. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil would eat you up. He would utterly destroy you. I'm running out of time, but one time, somebody can ask me if they're interested in this. One time, I challenged the devil, even as a Christian. I thought that I had the devil beat, and I challenged the devil, and he beat me down to a bloody pole. You can't win. You cannot beat the devil. The devil destroyed Adam and Eve. The devil destroyed the angels. The devil will destroy you. The only reason the devil has not destroyed every single person in this room is because he's on a leash. Because that hedge of protection that we saw in the book of Job, that God would not allow him to pass that line. You need to thank God for the reason why you're still here today and why you still have your faith. Not only did God save you, he has protected you from the devil. He's the one who's kept you safe. All right, I got very little time, so we got to get through the rest of this passage so we can get on to another book next time. All right, so let's go to verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is a true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So let's break this down real quick. We see in verse 19 our condition. What was our condition? We were slaves of sin, slaves of the devil. Have you been here in Sunday school? We've been talking about that. The devil has had people in slavery, been locked away, like Lot was stolen. We were stolen by the devil, and we were, we were tied up in his shed, headed to hell. That's what verse 19 says. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So did we. But Christ broke in to the devil's house, bound the strong man, and plundered his goods. And that goods were me and you. And that's the rescue. Look at verse 20. Even though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. We were locked and enchained and enslaved by the devil in the devil's home, headed to hell. But somebody from the outside broke in and came and rescued you. And his name was Jesus Christ. That's our rescue. Now, what is the identity of the person who showed up and came to rescue us? You see that in the end of verse 20. He is the true God and eternal life. Who's it talking about? Who is the he is the true God? Well, who is the person we're just talking about? The Son of God is the one who's come and given us understanding. Okay, that's the Son of God. That we may know him, who? The Son of God. And we are in him, who? The Son of God, who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He, the Son of God, is the true God and eternal life. That's the identity of Christ right there. There's the deity of Christ right there. Jesus is eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who's the way? Jesus. Who's the truth? Jesus. Who is the life? Jesus, that same Jesus, the one who Thomas said, my Lord and my God, is right here identified as God. He is the true God. He's eternal life. God in flesh coming down to rescue you. 
In John chapter 17, verse 3, it says, And this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. Eternal life is found in a person, and that person is Jesus. To have Jesus is to have life. And finally, what should our response be? We saw a condition, slavery. We saw our rescue, Jesus. And we saw his identity, he's a true God in eternal life. And what should our response be? Very simple, verse 21. Little children, keep yourself from idols. That's your response. Now that you've been rescued by this great God who has saved you, now you are to worship him and to follow him and to live your life for him. In Romans chapter 12, it says that we are to be living sacrifices to God, which is our reasonable service. Is your reasonable service to serve the God who rescued you, who saved you, and to follow him. So kill the idols in your life. Identify them and remove them. Because this is what we should do. And an idol is anything other than God. Anything that we worship other than God. An idol is worshiping anything other than Jesus. We should worship Jesus and him alone. Remember Jesus when he was tempted by Satan? And Satan told him to worship him? And he said, get behind me, Satan. We should worship the Lord your God, and only him you should serve. Only God is worth your service. Let us serve God, and let us keep ourselves from idols. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for salvation. Lord, we talked about this with the pizza with the pastor. Lord, we know that we want joy in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We want to be happy, and we want our joy to be refreshed. And we know often that the thing that hinders us from having the joy of the Lord that we ought to is idolatry. It is the fact that the Canaanites have moved in and they have set up idols and we find ourselves at those same idols flirting and messing around. And Lord, we ask that you were to remove them. Open our eyes to them. Help us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers and be godly people that can live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.